All right, let's go into your next patient. So a 65-year-old woman with a stage 1, ER 70% positive, PR negative, grade was not reported, invasive ductal carcinoma. She underwent mastectomy at that time and was started on letrozole. About three and a half to four years after taking letrozole, she started having some epigastric discomfort for which she went to see her gastroenterologist. And some of the workup he did included a right upper quadrant ultrasound. And a liver nodule was noted at that time. Therefore, further metastatic workup was started and she was found to have both liver and bony metastases that were ER positive, PR negative, HER2 negative. So before we go on to what happened at that point, let me ask you, did you take care of her originally in 2004? No, I didn't take care of her originally. So, you know, it's interesting, Sandy, just before we move forward, going back and thinking about this lady, 1.2 centimeters, node negative, ER positive, HER2 negative, 2004. I think the oncotype was kind of just kind of getting reared up around that time. Soon Paik was presenting it every year and people were kind of like, hmm. And it would have been interesting to see what her oncotype was because people think a lot about avoiding chemo, but maybe if we had had an oncotype on this lady earlier on, she might end up getting chemo. Well, I totally agree with you. And that's why I would, you know, seeing her today would absolutely get an oncotype. And many Physicians out there, I think, still would look at this patient, stage one, ER positive, HER2 negative, postmenopausal, and say, oh, I don't need an oncotype. It's expensive. It's not going to be helpful. She just needs hormonal therapy. But it's a very good case to show you that we really don't know about biology from these standard markers. And I would have gotten an oncotype clearly in this patient. And it's interesting. She said that her doctor told her, and it wasn't Neelam at the time, when she saw her doctor at four years of letrozole said, oh, you can just stop. You're doing great. You know, you're cured from this and you have no problems in the future. And it was only a couple months later that she started developing this epigastric discomfort and then the liver mets were diagnosed. And she did not want to stop the letrozole. She said, I'm going to continue this because she had been reading herself. And she said everything she read said at least five years. She also asked me, I think in her second visit, she said, Dr. Dendeluri, I've been reading about Oncotype. Is that something I should have had in 2004? Wow. Wow. Huh. Yeah, it's really so tough to think about, you know, situations where you kind of left a stone unturned. I guess that's why so many people end up getting chemo for, you know, minimal benefit. But you encountered her for the first time, though, when she was just diagnosed with METS. Absolutely. And what happened at that point? So because she had visceral disease and she had symptomatic disease with pain, and she actually had a neuropathic pain in her right upper quadrant as well, as in the epigastric area. So therefore, at that time, we had a randomized trial open for first-line disease with paclitaxel bevacizumab or paclitaxel and sutant. Since then, that trial has been closed due to the inferior activity of sunitinib, paclitaxel, compared with the bevacizumab and paclitaxel. So she received about five cycles with the paclitaxel and sunitinib. While she didn't meet the resist criteria, her liver lesion did decrease in size. 
and her pain did get better. However, she had very poor tolerance to the sunitinib. She already had an underlying history of hypothyroidism, and the sunitinib exacerbated this. Additionally, she had a lot of GI intolerance, especially in regards to diarrhea, and she had terrible dysgeusia, and she said she didn't enjoy anything that she normally likes. So she lost a lot of weight. She said sour taste in her mouth, really miserable quality of life during this time. And she's a thin woman to begin with. So she just said, I've had it. And so we continued her on single agent Paclitaxel for about seven more months. So before you go on, just to sort of pick back up on the Sunitinib, Sandy, because I know the NSAVP either was interested in or they actually launched the trial that looked at, I think it was post-neoadjuvant Sunitinib and that kind of dropped by the wayside. It seems like sunitinib in general in breast cancer is kind of sort of out the door. I think so. I mean, we were going to do sunitinib post-neoadjuvant in patients who hadn't gotten a past CR. And then the, I think a couple of trials actually either closed or reported that were not active, showing it not to be as effective as the comparator. So it's really kind of fallen out of favor right now. So this lady... Got the paclitaxel, essentially, I guess, and did okay? Yes, she received it for seven more months. And then she had some progression of disease in her liver and a new skull metastasis. And additionally, she was diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism at that time. This is just radiologically or clinically? Radiologically. Radiologically. So since then, she's been on doxel. And she's received about eight cycles and doing well on that. And what about hormonal therapy? So interesting that you bring that up. Like I said, when she presented, she presented with visceral disease that was symptomatic. Therefore, since she had been on letrozole, instead of giving her Fazlodex or another aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen, I went ahead and started her on cytotoxic chemotherapy. Now that her disease is stable... And also, she's having some palmar dysesthesias and kind of just tired of chemotherapy. She was asking for a chemotherapy break. And as Sandy astutely pointed out, she did have, you know, four years of hormonal therapy with Famara. And, you know, it's not like her disease recurred within six months of her breast cancer diagnosis. Therefore, I switched her today to a steroidal aromatase inhibitor eczemustane. She's not having any symptoms from her disease right now. She's doing well, and she's been on cytotoxic chemotherapy for over 20 months. So she wants a little break. So, Sandy, what about fulvestrin? And specifically, any thoughts about the higher dose that's been discussed and presented recently of 500 milligrams a month? Well, the confirmed study looked at the higher dose, the 500 day one, then 14, then Q28 days, and showed a longer time to progression. I think it was about a month time to progression. So the data was positive from that aspect. I mean, it's not overwhelmingly positive, but it certainly does suggest that the higher dose is better. As we all know, it's a very insoluble drug, so you have to give a lot of it in IM injections. But I've actually used it quite a bit and find it, you know, patients don't complain of the pain, and it's pretty easy to give once a month, and you don't have to take pills. So I like it. I think it's very good. I think that the confirmed trial does show the efficacy. The effect trial compared it to exomestane, and they were really the same. So it does show that you could, in this case, also could have used Fazildex. And we talked about it, but the issue is she's on... Anticoagulation. Right, she's on the Lovenox. So we right, didn't want to give her right. too many... 
IM sub Q injections because we did mention this. Right, that's I forgot about that. And that also brings up the issue of bevacizumab in this lady. Does this history of pulmonary embolism mean she never gets it, or is there any situation, say, anywhere you might consider it? Actually, I think I probably wouldn't give it to her based on the fact that she did have the pulmonary embolism. And, you know, these patients have a higher proclivity anyway to have clots. So I probably wouldn't. I think she's done extremely well on the regimen she's been on for fairly long periods of time. What went into the decision to put her on Doxel, for example, as opposed to capecitamine at that point? So she was having a lot of gastrointestinal issues residual from the suitant. And I didn't want to exacerbate that with the capecitabine at that time. So she and I talked about it. And when she found out that one of the side effects was diarrhea, she said, you know, I just started getting my stomach back to, even though it was months, she at least felt that the side effects of the sunitinib wore on for a while. So she was very hesitant to take anything with diarrhea. Now, Sandy, in this situation, because of the pulmonary embolus, as you said, there's the issue in terms of bevacizumab. But sort of putting that aside, what are your thoughts about bevacizumab in this second or later line situation? And maybe you could comment on the data that was presented at San Antonio from the Ribbon 2 study looking at that. Right. The Ribbon 2 study looked at the capecitabine and many different chemotherapy agents with bevacizumab and did show a longer time to progression when bevacizumab was added to any of these agents. And I was very excited about it because, as we all know, the original data coming out with bevacizumab in second line and above therapy that Kathy Miller presented several years ago and has published showed basically that there was no benefit. There was a response rate benefit, but no progression-free survival benefit when you added bevacizumab to capecitabine. So that was kind of a deflating study to hear about. And then we had the Ribbon 1 trial data that came out last year that's first line, and also the 2100 trial with paclitaxel and bevacizumab showing a benefit, the Avato trial with docetaxel showing a benefit, and now having the second line data with one of my favorite drugs, which is capecitabine and other agents. So I think it was great to see that data. And the issue is really reimbursement, whether the drug will get reimbursed second line. But I think the data is strong enough, certainly, to use it. In her case, if she hadn't had the pulmonary embolism, I would use bevacizumab with capecitabine in her as one of her next treatments. So the last thing I'd like to ask both of you is what it was like today. I guess you two worked together. What was your relationship at the NCI? I was Sandy's fellow. You were Sandy's fellow. So you got to visit the practice of one of your fellows today, Sandy. It was great. I, you know, it was so easy because since I worked with her for so long and I think she's such a great doc, you know, I really, I'm just very proud of her and it was great to see her with the patients and not only because of her medical knowledge, which is very good, and her clinical judgment, which is very good, but her personal relationship with the patients, which is so important because they really, you know, they depend on her. And it was just really nice to see how much they care about her and respect her and trusted her opinion. How about you, Neilama? It was great, you know, because Sandy always adds something to whatever, uh, you know, and even though, you know, there were a few things that she brought up with each patient that, you know, I think, oh, maybe I should look at it like that or think about it like that. So, you know, just being around her, I learned something. And so that's nice. And that's always a great energy to have with someone that I've worked with and learned so much from over the years. 